This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. Paul Verschur here for the Convergent Science Network podcast, together with uh, Tony Prescott. And today we're talking to Barbara Finley, speaker at our BCPD Summer School uh, 2015. So Barbara, you, you've been very focused on understanding brain evolution. And um, also you emphasize issues of, let's say, the segmentation of brains, the commonalities between different brains. Um, so but what do you see as sort of the underlying principles of, of brain evolution? Um, a very large question to start with. <laughs> okay, so um, I think... I think the underlying question that I've come down on is the one that I uh, that emerges from a lot of research in evolution and development at Evo Devo field, which is how do you design something that is adaptable, that is responds to change, and robust does not respond to change simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's how I've started characterizing how to best understand how nervous systems um, evolve that that is distinguished in my mind from the the kind of random walk model of evolution that mm. that people have had um, to a large extent in in behavioral biology so far which is to imagine um, a brain and an organism as a series of ad hoc evolved patches as opposed to a <coughs> set of theme and variations on this uh, ad- adaptation and robustness. Um, so well, it, you know. Is this what you mean when you talk mm-hmm. about the filter idea? Is that mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, if you think about um, evolution of the brain only in terms of adaptation and maximizing, say, how well, you can detect a particular set of flowers or evade a certain predator or something like that. You, you come up with um, you know, a particular kind of, of nervous system that you imagine as being optimized for all these very specific uh, kinds, of, um, kinds of behavioral problems. But if you imagine that the same nervous system has to also survive horrible catastrophes and shifts of niche and all those sorts of things as also part of its repertoire, you come up with a different kind of nervous system that you need to evolve rather than this sequentially adding of, of components. You come up with something that has to have a certain set of uh, sort of core survival recognition learning functions as part of its repertoire, not only a set of you know, maximum adaptations. So is it, uh, mm-hmm. then you're thinking mm-hmm. less about evolution on the species level and more about phylogenetic change? Mm-hmm. It, it pushes you in that direction. I mean, all the all the causal structure is going, the causes, eventually we're going to come down to the survival of this versus that individual. But I, um, I think the idea is to, to think of cumulatively over individuals both the, the sort of adaptive mac, 
maximization kind of things. Can I recognize that particular kind of spot or, you know, can I find this kind of food the best versus can I find any food? Can I get out of this hole? You know, that kind of, so we've got two kinds of individual histories to amass, not just the adaptation one, but also the, um, you know, dealing with any eventuality one as well. And uh, so, so then the ones that the runs that remain alive have yeah. to do both. The so we the fitness, that would be the fitness aspect of it, like yeah. how appropriate is the behavior coming mm-hmm. out of that system in mm-hmm. the end. Mm-hmm. But then, so, so what, what you emphasize actually for, mm-hmm. also during your talk, what is say four key perspectives, let's say, that, mm-hmm. that, that you, that you mm-hmm. follow, right? One is this whole idea of how do you allocate neural structure mm-hmm. or neural modules, however mm-hmm. we can talk about mm-hmm. how to define yeah. that. But how do you allocate those strategically in, in, mm-hmm. in the face of these challenges for, for survival, mm-hmm. right? And then <clears throat> the second one, of course, how do you then exactly control the parameters of your neurogenesis? Mm-hmm. Um, the fourth one was how do you get coordination to actually build an, a multi-component mm-hmm. system? Mm-hmm. And lastly, this whole role mm-hmm. of embodiment and, and motivation as mm-hmm. additional constraints on that, on that process. So these, mm-hmm. are, these are four big categories, if yes. you want, mm-hmm. of, of questions when, when mm-hmm. we look at this whole issue of, of the development of a species-specific mm-hmm. brain. So, but now, if you would have to rank order those as in terms of, in terms of which of these four mm. categories would be understand best, and which of these four is actually of the greatest importance for our understanding, how, how would you rank order the four? Um, Uh, boy, uh, let's see. Uh, I hope we get to edit some of this out here, but, um, no, no problem. <laughs> yes. Uh, the, those four things I, I talked about were more, um, how the sort of empirical gathering of data that I did, um, you know, s- separate itself into categories. The real categories, I think, span those. So, so there's, the one category which uh, Jerison called, I think, originally proper mass or something, which is allocation of neural resources to what the animal's actually going to encounter. Um, and I, and that, that is both point number one and point number four. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so we find what looked like uh, something of, of easily modifiable or presets or something like that in an evolutionary sense of am I going to be the kind of animal that, that maximizes uh, chemosensation um, or uh, visual auditory or something like that. And it seems to be that uh, over and over again, most likely independently from the very first uh, bony fish and sharks, um, amphibians, reptiles, mammals, that, um, that animals keep diverging on those same differences again and again as, as a gross allocation of one of neural mass to one or the other in terms of processing resources. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but then the, the last bit of, of the talk, which is that um, most, I'd say probably most of that, given that bias in where you're going to get your sensory information come, is, is going to be coming from how the environment and motivation instructs the animal. So, 
So in terms of nervous system content, that's the big thing. Um, now the other two are, I think, both about processing, and it's those are those are orthogonal. So um, uh, my my covert theory about what makes a vertebrate and why vertebrates took off at the 450 million 500 years it did is they had in place sort of four the four big learning engines that would would be um, useful so this is uh, which is things like uh, like cortex and hippocampus are, are both uh, sort of association um, information extractors and then we have reinforcement learning is is embodied in basal ganglia, um, and and the the last sort of the cerebellar kind of learning, um, which is the comparison and subtraction and optimization on that that dimension. You find all those in the very first vertebrates um, all and, together. And that's a bit of a surprise, actually, yeah. even to many yeah. uh, professional neuroscientists yes. <laughs> who so, will say, "Oh, cortex, yeah. that's just in mammals." Well, I don't mean the cortex <laughs> per se. I mean yeah. the thing that the that thing, will, the, the, the will, thing that cortex is doing is yeah. in all these other yeah. species. Mm-hmm. Um, and but the but your talk emphasized mm-hmm. the, the conservation of these structures exactly over time, but mm-hmm. also the adaptability. Mm-hmm. And the adaptability was particularly around the relative sizes mm-hmm. of parts of the brain. But even mm-hmm. there, you know, the mm-hmm. the single greatest predictor mm-hmm. of how big any bit of the brain is going to be is how big the overall brain is. That's yes. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so uh, so each each part of the brain has its own rate of change with respect to total brain size. And, um, and apparently no vertebrate has ever decided that the way to enlarge your brain is to... Um, you know, double down on the number of motor neurons you have and nothing else. <laughs> so so right. what, what animals do, if their um, energetic situation or whatever allows them to support more brain, where that extra brain is going to go is in these sort of laterally placed association areas that, that look across sensory and motor systems. Um, and so there's an interesting question here mm-hmm. around you know, whether no vertebrates explored outside that space because mm-hmm. uh, it's not it, it's not mm-hmm. possible to go outside that space or it wouldn't mm-hmm. be evol- evolutionary advantageous, or mm-hmm. is it just that, you know, there's certain aspects mm-hmm. of this brain architecture which are locked in place which cannot now be changed mm-hmm. easily? Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, question. I, I uh, Paul Katz, who, who is um, at... Uh, Georgia State University and, and past president of the Society for Neuroethology had some data recently that just blew me away, which was sort of going to this particular question. So he studies marine mollusks, and of which they're, uh, I'm going to do violence to the numbers on these, but let's, um, so let's say there are 60,000 of them, give or take an order of magnitude. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, um, and of those marine mollusks, um, only uh, a very small fraction, some number, say, a couple order of magnitudes down, say, 40 to 100, actually detached and have become mobile. Um, and given the kind of work I've been doing with vertebrates, I fully expected 
to see um, that we would see sort of bilateral symmetry and swimming along uh, by alternating contractions and um, that that's kind of the vertebrate optimal I had come to expect from seeing all those different kinds of things. The What you do see couldn't be more different. So we have all these animals that have been attempting to swim um, for comparable periods of time, and some of them are doing handsprings. Some of them are just looking like they're having some kind of seizure. <laughs> some of them are right. doing by, you know, and 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 their job is it's just like the evolutionary learning algorithms where they where they, uh, you know, make animals uh, um, in the computer uh, yeah. reproduce if they just succeed in getting over some finish line. These are the same kind of things, and you see this same kind of wild differences in kinds of movement. And then I realized on seeing that stuff that that truly not everything is evolvable. Right. <laughs> that that these these are animals that have, have become mobile and have, uh, but uh, it's not a good point. Yeah, they've remained yeah. there as sort of singular and kind of comical examples. A lot of them, um, and and so there is some some data that would bear on this kind of question about what kinds of things permit uh, changing. I, I guess if you read the classical account of, and by that I mean that there's a book of Romer, which everyone reads when they yeah. study vertebrates, and what they, they attribute that the sudden change in the number of extant species from, you know, 30 species to 40,000 species of of uh, lamprey-like animals to bony fish, they attribute that to the jaw. Yeah, uh, that mm -hmm. that that you can now, uh, you know, exploit so many different kinds of prey and eat so many different things. Well, um, I jaw's all good, probably true, but there's a brain there too that suddenly appears. Yeah, and um, but and the it, brain is yeah. isn't so different, maybe between ancestral mm -hmm. jawless fish and the successful well, jawless the, fish. Um, there's not so much forebrain that the whole um, parasympathetic sympathetic division of the nervous system doesn't really come in till you get the jawed fishes. So there's been a right. lot of. But but we don't really mm -hmm. have any extant jawless fish that are of any sophistication. We have no, but scavengers it's, and bottom feeders. Mm -hmm. uh, true, but um, now it you know it it there could it certainly could be the case that there could yeah. be combinations that, that we haven't seen but what we have there uh, the ones that did succeed that have populated all these niches um, do have extra brain fish features as well right. as just the jaws yeah. and so i'm just i'm not saying that i know that to be the case but there's sort of two points i'm i'm trying to make here one is that um, that w once you see very, uh, you know, Paul Katz's catalog of marine mollusks. Um, you can see that without any particular proof at this point that some things seem to be more potentially adaptable than others and that not everything is possible from every starting point. And the other is uh, for the traditional vertebrate account, I think we should consider the brain. And yeah. what it's capable of not not just stop. Well, it's the jaw. Uh, so, so, but uh, uh, but, yeah. but what's remarkable about mm -hmm. the story of the brain mm -hmm. is yeah. that this really quite complex structure was there so early on, mm -hmm. and that yes, it that has is. it has been able to adapt mm -hmm. while keeping that basic mm -hmm. structure. As that animals, is. for instance, have moved out of the water and onto land, mm -hmm. and, and then from there into the air, 
and mm-hmm. all, all these and then back into the water. Exactly. Uh, and yeah. and it, it's done that without any change in the gross mm-hmm. architecture. Mm-hmm. But That's there true. Is, there's lots of other changes around that architecture. Mm-hmm. But... I, what I'm pointing out is that, that the neglected part of that original architecture may be something about this um, sort of multiplication or having several kinds of, let's call them learning engines, in that structure that may not really have been in a number of the other small organisms at the time, that, that maybe that's where we might be looking. So the preserved structure in that, in in all of those animals, for example, um, if we take the four brain divisions, um, the the thing called the medial pallium um, is recognizable as the hippocampus in mammals and, you know, is involved in rapid memory and navigation, those sorts of things. And to the extent that there is any large comparative basis, it's the same kind of general function in birds to in the several studies also in fish um i'm not so so sure about what the reptile base is but here's here's one part of the of the forebrain that um is remarkably consistent in sort of where it is and what it does over all that range so i think we can really look at at that kind of um comparative base in the in the forebrain now that we really couldn't before. But that you present mm-hmm. a very quantitative mm-hmm. approach mm-hmm. to um, towards trying to understand these invariant mm-hmm. aspects of, of brain mm-hmm. evolution. Mm-hmm. And um, <coughs> you were pointing us to our uh, to your translating time <laughs> .net uh, domain mm-hmm. where where you present data on 18 different species and mm-hmm. then you use different approaches like like uh, Regression. Mm-hmm. You looked at sizes of different brain structures mm-hmm. to try to get a handle on okay, how invariant are these structures and their relations mm-hmm. across these eighteen species? Mm-hmm. So, what what is standing out in that relationship most, in your your opinion? The the thing that that utterly surprised us right from the beginning and and still does. I as I we still keep making uh, mistakes about uh, hypothesizing the opposite, which is the absolute stability of um, mammalian brain development. Um, so, so essentially what this model says and can do is that I can um, transform the developmental schedule of a mouse, and I'm talking about just the brain here from the time the first neurons are generated to sort of the start of... Uh, the very first behavior, um, and I can I can simply turn a, a nonlinear dial, and and um, with ninety nine percent accuracy, uh, predict when that's going to happen in a cat, in a monkey, in a human. For and and the detail of this translation is very deep. So uh, when I'm saying translate the schedule, I mean I can tell you when the Purkinje cells in the, in the cerebellum are born. I can tell you when the cells in layer four of somatosensory cortex are born. I can tell all these, these very specific things about brain development across all these species with that amount of, of accuracy. Now this, um, this was originally surprising in that I thought that changing sort of telescoping and you know, compressing or shifting time things would be one of the major ways by which species uh, differences would occur. Um, 
And we have got a couple cases of that that I described, which is uh, in the case of how much cortex you want versus olfactory bulb, and the other was how you change a retina to be nocturnal or diurnal, where you do get shifts of schedules with respect to each other. But overall, that, that mammalian brain development schedule stays rock steady. You don't change it. Um, this is not my interpretation of these data. That is the data. You mm -hmm. know, so it's, it's nonlinear. Mm -hmm. it, it's nonlinear across mm -hmm. species or within a so species. So, non. So, when I say turn a nonlinear dial, that means in order to transform the very early events of a mouse schedule into a monkey schedule, I don't have to change it very much. But to change, uh, we get onto an exponential curve. But for the late events, like. Uh, takes first step, um, right. there's going to be much more relative duration between the points in the in the monkey scale or the human scale than the mouse scale. So there's not so much difference in the first events. There's big temporal differences in the late events, but this is just an exponential predictable curve. Does that make right. sense? Right. Oh, so okay. there's just a couple yeah. of parameters yeah, that you yeah. can capture yeah. any creature. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. But now, do you see this model as providing you the scaffold of a potential brain mm -hmm. or it really defines a brain and so I, I was mostly turning it describing a sort of scaffold of of a brain um, that that this maybe is the uh, a, a stable economical structure that um, is best uh, you know maybe, the one that positions itself best to make maximum use of experience. Mm -hmm. uh, that gets that. Um, but that's a, that's a positive way of looking mm -hmm, at it. Another yeah. one might be to say that this mm -hmm. is a fixed timetable. You can't mess with it without you know, killing I, the I, animal. I used to think that. I mean, I, I, that's a Stephen Jay Gould kind of yeah. argument, which is that it. And I, I have that title as a contrast in a lot of my papers, which is things like, is it developmental constraint or de developmental structure? Right. And, um, and I keep coming back to 450 million years of defending the same structure. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I think we could have gotten out of it in that amount of time if it was a true constraint. So we can't do better. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I, I'm thinking of this. And more, I'm trying to push myself into thinking, okay, how do I describe this as an optimal state? What is it optimizing as opposed to what is it, um, you know, why are we stuck with it? Um, a lot of these basic body plan things um, are so actively defended on a genetic level by animals um, I th that, that it looks like not only are they not constraints of the sense of, be to the sense of being stuck with a thing, yeah. um, that, that they're actively kept in place um, in the genetics of, of the animal. So, so that makes it um, reasonable and also falsifiable, too, that, that these are in some way optimal. And, and that's the, a lot of the, the change in the EvoDevo approach to uh, whole body and nervous system stuff is, okay, let's consider that this might be optimal. What is it optimizing? Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, not, yeah. but, but this, this observation mm -hmm. is based on mm -hmm. a number of 
of descriptors that you mm. use to, mm-hmm. to, to look at brain development. Mm-hmm. It's and all pretty much straightforward gross anatomy. Uh, sure, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah, so, but, but then yeah. you could make the argument, mm-hmm. actually, mm-hmm. You, it blinds you for other kinds of influences that, that might mm. be more dependent mm-hmm. on the environment, that might be more flexible mm-hmm. or more dynamically regulated. Mm. Or you don't, you don't expect... Uh, I, I, I really am not making that distinction in any way. So, so I'm thinking that this is a way that makes lets you be flexible and dynamically mm-hmm. integrated. Not no, except <laughs> that you're always on this fixed time schedule. Yeah. Right. Okay. There's no way of escaping that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because what, what I'm mm-hmm. what I'm sensing mm-hmm. is a potential conflict mm-hmm. with the more general Evo Devo mm-hmm. perspective mm-hmm. that 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 you mm-hmm. also have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now we come out with mm-hmm. with, a, with a perspective that says, well, actually, this whole development program is just fixed. There's nothing you can do about mm-hmm. it. Environment won't influence that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we also mm-hmm. Barry Culp was telling us yesterday about mm-hmm. the roles of stress in development. Mm-hmm. And this might be a factor, but maybe mm-hmm. you don't see that because the level mm-hmm. of description doesn't allow you to extract these features. Mm. Um. I think I think the the, the mm-hmm. talk you presented mm-hmm. actually yeah. did did mm-hmm. balance mm-hmm. some of that mm-hmm. fixed constraint with mm-hmm. some flexibility because mm-hmm. you talked then a lot about uh, how delaying timing mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. or you know delaying the onset of certain mm-hmm. things. I guess, but that's within a window. You can't delay yeah. things indefinitely, mm-hmm. but you can shift things around enough that yeah. that can have quite big changes. Yeah. Um, I, I can, for example, add two things. So I, I, one thing I brought up with the uh, olfactory versus visual stuff um, is a sort of preset for a, a commonly encountered change in niche in animals that, that they would have sort of been filtered to have mechanisms to respond to. Um, Stress, you can recharacterize this as as we're used to seeing a very stable environment. We're used to seeing a very unstable environment. And so it's interesting to me also that you see this, a sort of suite of stress responses as as part of the, uh, this is... this is below innate, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. You know, so this is this is more in, in in the you know the structure of the genome over evolutionary time that has um, the ability to respond respond to both kinds of environments. Um, there's um, another thing I I know I just tried to get started on, but haven't gotten too far, which is understanding critical periods in plasticity. So, um, I mean, this is, in fact, one of our current projects. So um, I know nothing at this point about what the constraints are on these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, is is there really any, um, say, across mammal optimal period to learn certain kinds of knowledge? that are good for particular structures. Uh, no one's really looked at it, tried to gather information in that way. Or do you not do that kind of thing? For example, um, in birdsong, um, which has been something that's been studied a great deal for critical periods. So, um, uh, so a, a story for birdsong uh, that's often told is that the, uh, you know, say the bird's, in this hemisphere, or whatever, come north and establish their nest, and the eggs are laid, and the 
and the nestlings are in the nest and they hear a song in the spring and they get they sort of match up to their template and they learn the song and and uh, and there's a critical period and the NMDA receptors come on and they come off and okay so so maybe there's this critical period there. but then it turns out that there's um, an unfortunate set of nestlings who are born in August and they don't hear any song at all and so what do you do do you just wasted all that reproductive effort and, and, and grew a whole bunch of song. Well, it turns out it isn't like that at all. These animals uh, put their critical period on hold until the next spring when they actually will hear some song. So this is something where the appropriate kind of input appears to initiate the critical period. So, so maybe the thing that would be general would not be having a certain time but a certain kind of initiation, mm -hmm. you know, so self-initiated, self-terminated critical periods as opposed to things that are set in there. Right. And so... Um, so that would then allow yeah. environmental cues yeah. to mm -hmm. actually trigger a part mm -hmm. of a developmental program. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, and, and you really have to understand that I'm, I'm starting from the position where I thought that everything was in play mm -hmm. and that, that yeah. everything should have been as changeable as that. And there seems to be a whole lot of structural stuff that just isn't. Right, exactly. And then we'll see, you know, what happens to things but like that. But now in your, in your description mm -hmm. of evolution of isocortex mm -hmm. versus olfactory bulb, mm -hmm. right, over these mm -hmm. 18 mammalian species mm -hmm. that you looked at, you saw there's a very specific mm -hmm. pattern. At first, mm -hmm. all species are closely mm -hmm. clustered. It's not mm -hmm. that... There mm -hmm. is some variability mm -hmm. within mm -hmm. each, each species cluster. Mm -hmm. But you... You also interpret that in terms of some sort of continuum in this in this relationship between isocortex size, olfactory bulb size, as if it's some sort of trade-off, like more mm -hmm. olfactory bulb, less isocortex. Okay. Is that is that really how you see it? A trade-off between these well, structures? I, I showed you two kinds of data. So I showed you data on a whole lot of different mammals that that showed a continuum, both um, across and within taxonomic groups. So, so that would mean that, um, you know, say looking, uh, looking within monkeys, we could find some monkeys that uh, have virtually no <laughs> olfactory bulb and limbic system at all, hardly, and some that have a fair amount. Um, and we can find that pretty much in any one of our groups. Okay, so then we go back to instead of uh, 180 animals or so, we go back to our 18 that we have the really elaborate um, developmental data on. And so we can find the examples of the animals that are low and high on our olfactory versus cortex dimensions. And we say, okay, is there a timing component to that? And I can't really talk much uh, about um, how much the, they are or how continuous those animals are. I suppose I could, but it's, I don't mm -hmm. think it's really enough data. Mm -hmm. And and so then I can find if I just ask, let let me you know make a split of these into high and low olfactory versus cortex groups. Um, is there a difference in how they develop? And yes, there is. So the the primates and the carnivores. Uh, with the high cortex delay producing their cortex until later and that makes more of it mm -hmm. because they have more time to develop their precursor cells. Now, with the sticking point for me here mm -hmm. is that is there any kind of intrinsic constraint 
in this developing brain that's okay mm -hmm. if i'm allocating more resources to one structure mm -hmm. then let's say there's a metabolic cost and therefore mm -hmm. i cannot grow another structure mm -hmm. equally well mm -hmm. so that there's always a sort of from a pure morphogenesis mm -hmm. perspective there there are constraints mm -hmm. on the other hand you can say no every structure develops as an independent module mm -hmm. triggered by environmental conditions the niche you're in so in mm. principle, I could grow a huge olfactory bulb and a big cortex if yeah. my environment and actually there are yes, we do have carnivores. Do, some do carnivores both. will yeah. do that, right? So, so where are we in, in, in those two interpretations? Uh, so brain is really expensive. Um, so I've, I've I've actually written a little bit about this. You can contrast two kinds of explanations. Um, so, so one is if brain is expensive. Um, then, then it's reasonable to get the kind of negative correlation that we see there. So if you if you have a high cortex value, you're relatively more likely to have a low limbic olfactory one. Um, so uh, that that ha when you have like an energetic or caloric restraint or something like that would be something you'd find. Another is a a mechanistic constraint, um, which is. Uh, Something I've been looking. At. I, I showed a, a picture of the that, that showed the fact that the thing that gives rise to the olfactory cortex and the cortex and the hippocampus are so the 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 the, the, the neocortex is sitting right between the hippocampus and the olfactory cortex embryologically, and it looks like it would be just so easy. Let's take that uh, primordial tissue and give it more to the cortex. Let's take that. And give it more to the other the other two, which are immediately adjacent to it. Um, that implies a zero sum game. Um, that that if it's that mechanism and you do it that way, it should always be push pull like that. Now the evidence I can offer against that is that it's only mammals that have the negative correlation that I know of so far. So is that okay. is that that particular mm -hmm. example? But are you then mm -hmm. looking a bit too late in embryology because you there talked is no, about there's nothing earlier in embryology than that. This is really early. Yeah, is it? This yeah, is, that's this right. Is because you were talking uh, yeah, about this is the migration of the precursor cells, and and this is at that stage. Yeah. Too. So this there is no earlier in which we could actually identify something that's going to give rise to the oh, cortex. Okay. okay. But and then but one of the the mm -hmm. uh, really interesting things mm -hmm. I think you were sh were showing was the constraint that the developmental process mm -hmm. has on the potential for evolution mm -hmm. because you were saying that it was only the lateral parts mm -hmm. uh, of this embryological structure that had the potential to really change and mm -hmm. that the more, more central parts were mm -hmm. fairly fixed. Is, yeah. that, is that right? Yeah, so it, well, this is just a description of the data where if, I, if you lay out the embryonic brain on a front-to-back, middle-to-edge, right. um, that... Um, it turns out that how long the cells uh, divide during early embryogenesis depends on position. So the closest you are, the closer you are to the edge, the longer. The closer you are to the front, the longer. Um, right. So this is just describing. What's but that going that description on. must be capturing some constraint, yeah. presumably that we um, don't perhaps understand very well. I, mean, I don't know if it's. I don't know if it's a. You know, like I don't think it's a property of embryonic tissues to divide a lot at the edge or something. I've never heard of anything like that. But um, you know, so maybe there is something like that. But what, what I, what I, I would say is sort of a, um, 
interesting overall interpretation of this is to come at it just opposite. Okay, so what you do is you set up an embryonic structure that gives you variation on some dimension. And in this case, it's variation in the numbers of cells and the that that, that structure is going to produce. Then, then you allocate function to that location. Um, so if you, for example, um, one thing that's, that's quite interesting about this, there are two places in uh, human brains and mammal, mammalian brains that always continue to produce neurons throughout life. What are those? Uh, that's the hippocampus and, and the olfactory bulb. Where are those? Those are sitting on exactly that edge there. Of, right. So um, if you look at bird brains... Um, they they produce neurons in many more places throughout life, but all you move in is a, just a little bit more towards the midline and pick up the structures that are sitting on that edge. If you're a fish, you're essentially generating all the brain throughout life, but you are generating sort of relatively more of it on those lateral edges. <coughs> so then, then I, I think the possibility is that you then take that variation in the size that it's going to be and the potential energetic cost you're going to put into it, and then you can put function into it by designating those cells there in some different way. Right. Well, but these mm -hmm. are precursor cells. They've yet to specialize mm -hmm. into particular neuron mm -hmm. types. They've yet even to migrate into position. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, I show the fate, the fate map of this thing is, is as we're des describing it now in vertebrates, very fixed. Right. So the medial part is always going to be motor neurons, and the, you know, and the next step over is going to be the visceral motor neurons, and they're they're the, so those locations mean something very specific in terms of what neuron is going to be being generated. Also means a duration, but when this all started out, maybe the fact that assignment of type in in, in the course of development comes after the decision of how long you're going to be generated means that it, it could be you assigned, you know, sort of type after the sort of size of the thing was yeah. was entered into the equation. But, I mean, it, it comes back mm -hmm. to this question of how gridlocked is mm -hmm. the, the design of mm -hmm. the brain. Mm -hmm. And what essentially mm -hmm. we're saying is that there's, there's mm -hmm. certain things that that yeah. are decided early on in development. Maybe, and if you try to change anything there, yeah, it might have lots of knock-on consequences. Yeah, so there's some of those things. But 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 look, what the things that do get big are the very things that stay out of gridlock. So the ones right. that are on the lateral edge are pretty much uniformly multisensory, multimotor. Um, you know, can control different effector systems and are the, the very parts of the brain, with the exception of the very specific olfactory cortex, that are the most plastic and changeable in their functions. So you allocate more space to the specifically multimodal things mm -hmm. which can be allocated to anything. Yeah, uh, but there's an yeah. interesting consequence <laughs> that may yeah. because on the one yeah. end, mm -hmm. I think it's also important to take mm -hmm. into account the morphological constraint imposed mm -hmm. by having a skull that you have to fill. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the brain generates the skull, not the other way around. No, <laughs> okay, no, wait, yeah, but so you think yeah. these, these things yeah. develop together, yeah, yeah, and there will be also mechanical mm -hmm. constraints mm -hmm. on that developing yeah. brain. And you better lay mm -hmm. down your brainstem before you lay down your cortex, mm -hmm. because otherwise you cannot pack it in there anymore. Mm -hmm. So that this already de defines a certain Mm -hmm. logical order you mm -hmm. would think yeah but then as you as you move out 
mm-hmm. later in development, so 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 the pr- more mm-hmm. primitive structures are mm-hmm. laid down, it's not a surprise you might end up with the most non-specific structures because mm-hmm. these also should be the hyperplastic structure because they they are more dependent. Mm-hmm. on somatic time to wire mm-hmm. themselves into that system mm-hmm. because they're under constraint, if you want. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. There's less guidance that you can give them. So maybe mm-hmm. this already then tells you why these more cortical-like mm-hmm. structures, these hyperplastic multimodal mm-hmm. associative structures are then more lateral and at mm-hmm. the outside of, mm-hmm. of, a, of a mm-hmm. developing brain because they're actually... These are easy to specify, mm-hmm. and you then leave yeah. it to their developmental, to their learning capability to wire themselves up with the rest of the mm-hmm. system. Would that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. There's another way of thinking about that, which, which is quite parallel, which is what a bunch of computer uh, scientists thinking about control systems have done. And um, so, um, you know, so there's several thing, uh, you know, several groups that have come down on. Um, this same kind of organizational principle. So, so if you want to make a device that can describe sort of catastrophic loss and sudden gains, okay, how do you build it? Um, well, what what you want to do is to keep its basic functions, like getting around and recognizing things, kind of untouched. And the last thing you want to do if you're going to make a big, fancy new brain is to have you know, your motor neurons on the one hand, they're going to do something, and then you have your sensory neurons. And then between those, you interpose some gigantic processing thing. And what, what you've succeeded in doing is now slowing down this organism so much that it will never, ever survive anything whatsoever. So what people found a much better control architecture to be is to keep those kinds of essential motor organizational functions by themselves and you build a brain beside that brain right okay okay mm-hmm. right. <laughs> yeah and that's that's what's going on i think the better description here of mm-hmm. so you you're you're modeling you're building a model of your brain sort of this predictive thing and evolution says oh that seems like a good idea too mm-hmm. i'm glad you exercise thought of that you know that you are now um being able to, to plan and, and simulate and integrate things while still kind of carrying on as usual. So that means you, you lay down these yeah. midline structures yeah. mm-hmm. and then you sort of pad it with mm-hmm. the hyperplastic <laughs> yeah. cortex-like mm-hmm. structure. Yeah, Wait, and it's literally beside in two ways. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's not, um, uh, you know, so somehow I, I, I find it easier or more pleasant to think about this sort of building a brain beside the brain than, than just having extra stuff lying around. Sure. <laughs> you know, yeah. but, uh, but, but perhaps it comes down to the same. You know. so, so, now what, what, so looking across all these pieces you've mm-hmm. analyzed, mm-hmm. Um, what would you now see as the blueprint of that mammalian brain? Mm. Uh, so we have... Um, uh, the whole spinal motor sensory core that um, you know takes care of all sort of essential movement and uh, eating and breathing, and then we gonna add on some limbs if we're going to be gonna be fancy that uh, uh, are sort of the fundamental operating uh, arrangement. Then. Um, I'm I'm very much a fond of a fond of a guy named Bjorn Merker and his views of uh, uh, how to 
but he's getting into consciousness, but we don't have to discuss mm-hmm. that so much. But um, no, we know Bjorn very well. We just spent two weeks with him. In, oh, really? In Woods Hole, yeah. <laughs> okay, so great. So, um, so he he views the, the the midbrain as the place where um, all this basic uh, integration comes together to make a sort of a sketch of operations for the animal. You know, so what's in front of me? What can I do with it? What do I want to do? Um, then. Um, then, sort of coming from the other direction, we have uh, the whole uh, visceral brain that, that knows about, okay, what is my state? What, you know, what sort of future state would I like? Am I trying to mobilize energy now or save it? Or, uh, you know, what do I want to show other individuals about what my energy state is? And then I'm going to combine that with that same sketch. Uh, this is something that's part of the vertebrate makeup and highly plastic. It's going to be quite different from one species to the next, how allocate, how energy is going to be allocated and how fast and towards what. And then we have, um, we have any these gigantic learning loops sitting around this whole thing. One is the, the slow auto-associating cortex thing, the fast auto-associating hippocampus. The uh, one who's going to take the output of both those things together, um, the reinforcement circuitry, and says, okay, which which of these combinations actually helped me and which do I wish to repeat as an animal? And then the, the cerebellar-like circuits that uh, um, take plans and optimize them. Um, so, so basically I see this uh, motor motivational core with uh, these second brains mm-hmm. sitting to the side, right, and and computing the state of that basic operating system, I guess, mm. and that would be it. Yeah. Okay. So four second yeah. brains. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, okay. So which yeah. animal of, of all the species <laughs> that you <laughs> yeah. in your database, which animal that comes gives us the purest reflection of of, of that blueprint, if you want? Everyone. But let's say yeah. some might have reduced some parts of it, and they might have exaggerated other parts. Mm. The house cat. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, no, I mean uh, the the since they at least the mammals all um, uh, are on the the same general trajectories. Uh, that's it's really almost impossible to answer that yeah. question. I mean, well, you, so, but, but yeah. one thing that, yeah. that that is obviously talked about yeah. is the change of size. In yeah. cortex, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps more than changes in these other second brain systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think? Too but much it's is made but of it's that? not the case that it's the, um, it you know. So it's on its exactly expected elementric line, as is the cerebellum. A lot of people make a lot of uh, you know uh, whether we should count neurons or volume or something. It or caloric expense. You basically need to count them all. You know so. So a, a, how many neurons is one measure of how big a structure is, how actually big it is is another measure of how big right. it is, or how many synapses you have. Or, uh, but the, I mean, the uh, Harry Jerison mm-hmm, story mm-hmm, was that mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. so-called uh, higher mm-hmm. mammals had mm-hmm. bigger brains than other mammals. Yeah. So so uh, there's so you can have you can dissociate brain size from body size. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But you cannot dissociate internal brain structure size from brain size. So a certain brain will always, if it's a primate, I mean, let's set the olfactory parameter, okay, at the right. outset, um, will have 
we have exactly the size cortex we ha should have for our size of brain. If we were a dolphin and we have more, a bigger brain, we have more cortex than us, proportionately. So but, there's no special selection on the cortex. But, but then there's the, the, yeah. the, the strong claim that in hominid evolution... It's you know, not true. Yeah, okay. It's just, it's the right size. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you mean in relative terms, it's there's, yeah. there's an invariance. The, there was a change in brain size overall. So yeah, the thing is that yeah. the brain size, we have a really, really big brain for our body size. We have exactly the cortex size that we should have for our brain size. Okay. Mm -hmm. But okay. Is, that, is that a constraint that if you mm -hmm. need... Um, just to take the corticocentric <laughs> view, which I don't actually hold, <laughs> but, you know, sort of devil's advocate. Uh, mm -hmm. If I want a bigger cortex and I have these developmental constraints, mm -hmm. I just have to build a bigger brain. There's no other way around it. Uh, that's what uh, so you evolution could, says so far. <laughs> yeah, so it could be read yeah. in that way. If I'm, if yeah. I'm wedded to my view that, mm -hmm. that humans have this fantastic mm -hmm. neocortex yeah. and that we just grew extra bits of brain that we maybe don't use so much in order to make make mm. that possible. No, but yeah. th there's something that, that, there's an inconsistency now here. Yeah. Because if it's always <laughs> relative to overall brain size. Yes, there's a real problem. Earlier, but earlier <laughs> yes, we, we discussed that you said, no, you can actually rel have relative mm. differences between a limbic, a limbic brain, the limbic cortex, mm -hmm. and the isocortex. Yeah, so, so right? you meant, I, I preface this whole thing with let's set... The, the limbic factor. Okay. Ah, okay. Okay. Uh, you were smart. Yes, <laughs> yes good. Okay. Yes, okay. this is the second component. <laughs> yes. yeah. Okay, fair enough. Yes, okay, fair yeah. enough. That, this, okay. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that second component mm -hmm. says that, yeah, my, mm -hmm. my cortex scales with my brain size, but also I can be a cortical-oriented mm -hmm. species or I can be an olfactory limbic-oriented mm -hmm. species. Yes. And that accounts for how much of the variance, roughly? 3% of Really? The Oh, yeah. okay. So the, the that's 3%, 3 is a, a lot of variance <laughs> considering the range that we have here. That's very <laughs> a lot tiny. of volume. Well, it's a, it's, it's a small amount of variance. It's a larger amount of tissue if you're considering the, the difference between, uh, you know, uh, mediums. Well, I, I, showed, I showed a picture of a, of, of a, a owl monkey's brain and a goody brain of yeah. exactly the same mass yeah. mm -hmm. and you know and and so the one is a cortex specializer and the cortex is hanging all over the side so you can't see the olfactory bulb and you can't see the cerebellum and all that in the owl monkey because the cortex has overgrown it but in this very same sized agouti you get a very good view of the mm -hmm. olfactory bulbs and the and the, and the cerebellum and everything, just because the cortex has which is a rodent, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yes, it's right. a big South American rodent, mm -hmm. right? And uh, so, um, so three percent sounds little, but if you look at those brains, that's a perfectly impressive yeah. difference. Mm -hmm. okay. And I guess you know, staying with my devil's advocate <laughs> position, mm -hmm. some people would also argue that uh, cortex has become specialized in other ways in uh, mm -hmm. primates. For instance, mm -hmm. you know, we have six layers of cortex like every other mammal, mm -hmm. but we seem to have uh, richer networks within some of those cortical layers. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you, do you buy into any of that? I think you had a slide showing that, that mm -hmm. layer two, three was expanded. Uh, but but the point of my slide... richer network, in yeah. interconnectivity at least. But, but I, was, I was trying to show that um, this is the how the... Uh, gradient of the cortex plays out over different brains. So 
Yeah, it, in in the set of animals I have in this set, the, the human has the largest cortex, but I don't have any dolphins or whales in there, so I can't really right. say that that we somehow, their primates or anything, hold the you know prize for most complex network, and I'm not sure exactly what, what that means except sort of a self-reifying my we're complex look at that thing it's complex well know? i think i think um, <laughs> if henry kennedy was here he'll be here next week and he, oh, can, yeah. he can contradict this he, he would <laughs> yeah, say I know that, henry pretty uh, well. that, yeah. that primates have mm-hmm. this richer uh, within the layers mm-hmm. they have these circuits uh, yeah. that, that take advantage of these additional cells that you have there so you have a few yeah. like sublets I guess so, so the question is whether this is some uh, virtue of being a primate or virtue of having a large cortex, or, yeah. you know, and uh, and that we just don't know yet. Yeah. I mean, the well, kind Barbara, of... Yeah. You also said yeah. that, uh, with respect to the mm-hmm. niche mm-hmm. specificity, this might mm-hmm. also relate to mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. point, mm-hmm. that actually there are other processes that work as well that mm-hmm. might be linked to then how mm-hmm. that organism interacts with its niche, which mm-hmm. might be ap- control of apoptosis, mm-hmm. Uh, thalamic drive onto a cortical mm-hmm. structure, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. might vary, yeah. and um, in general, activity-dependent volume Everything, change. Yeah. Right? So that mm-hmm. might mean that yeah. from a developmental yeah. perspective, you have, let's say, a prototypical scaffold mm-hmm. that then gets biased by how that niche mm-hmm. and the embodiment is sort of driving yeah. the scaffold using yes. these three principles. Yeah. Would you so, buy that? Yeah, I mean, so... so Taking this this basic set of, of layers and then embedding it in different kinds of experience or uh, different kinds of early instruction, I imagine you get all kinds of different things. Yeah. Um, no, but it might then account yeah. for these differences. There mm-hmm. might not be no contradiction. Yeah, I think so. And there's a lot of really basic stuff that we don't know. For if you look at if you look at dolphin cortex, for example, um, it looks um, it's sort of it it puts a little bit more. Uh, total uh, volume into area and less into cortex depth and uh, me and my, my group and I have we've done a lot of uh, modeling of this kind of thing and you have only to change that sort of quit fraction in early development in the cortex the very slightest amount to, to sort of direct stuff into more um, more neurons per cortical column versus more area so so I don't think we really know very much yet about um, just what the consequences of small changes in early developmental parameters are. And I think, uh, you know, there might, and and I've never understood why um, more layers in a cortex was supposed to be somehow intrinsically better. Um, more is better you know, but you know we, we still have the, the same um hippocampus that everybody else has and including the fish and and seems to do just fine mm-hmm. I, I don't i mean I, right. I just don't see i mean if if someone would come up and 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 show me and i defy you to find someone who has <laughs> that here we have a five-layered structure and look what it can do but i'm gonna make six layers and oh man now we got calculus i mean i don't mm-hmm. think so so it's really i mean it would be nice to actually see some demonstration but but now it's all sort of i you know large numbers mean something more mm-hmm. complex. Well, you, you did in your talk, talk yeah. uh, describe some uh, mm-hmm. Changes across cortex, particularly mm-hmm. talked about a gradient mm-hmm. of increased compression mm-hmm. going from the back of the brain to the front of the mm-hmm. brain, mm-hmm. and then you talked about the front of the brain mm-hmm. 
having more fan in, more systems talking into the front of the mm-hmm, brain. Mm-hmm. And Which I got from Henry Kennedy's yeah, study I wanted to put. Sure. <laughs> so, uh, and you can imagine mm-hmm. that bigger brains mm-hmm. are going to have more steps of compression. Exactly. So you don't have to time, imagine it, they do. So by the time you get to <laughs> frontal cortex, yeah. you've mm-hmm. got more abstraction. Exactly. And exactly. You, yeah. And that's how you get calculus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but that you you just conflated. The I'm happy you explained that, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but we were talking about layers. Um, you know, whether six layers of cortex is better than four in implementing calculus versus the number of steps that in a sort of hierarchy, which mm-hmm. is a different thing altogether. So I can easily make an argument as to why embellishing a hierarchy might be a better thing for extracting more and more abstract explanation. And I wouldn't have to come up with it myself. I could come with, up with all kinds of computational models that people have made on exactly mm-hmm. this point. Um, so, so that's why this finding this hierarchy from you know, a large number of neurons in the back of the cortex to a very small number in the front and this progressively greater compression, the bigger mm-hmm. the brain gets, um, sort of maps on to the computational work that people have done really right. nicely. You know, and so I'm not, I'm not making fun of the layer thing so much, but there's no comparable literature that says, uh, you know, five layers in a column um, allows me to do something that I couldn't do with four. I've just never seen anything even take that on. Right. You know, so it could be. But, but <laughs> yeah, no, so it, yeah. in some sense... Mm-hmm. Um, you also made made mm-hmm. a point that mm-hmm. you know if we have sort of this this this, this midline controller, mm-hmm. and then we have mm-hmm. these add-on learning mm-hmm. machines, mm-hmm. then you said, oh, if you then take cortex, mm-hmm. it's it, it's sort of equipotential, right? The, the Starting sort of equipotential, I guess, in the smaller yes, brains. So, yeah. No, but you also made that point where mm-hmm. you said, look, what's special about, mm-hmm. let's say, a language area? Is if mm-hmm. you just look at it mm-hmm. from from a, let's say a morphological mm-hmm. anatomical perspective. Mm-hmm. Is there anything special about it? So you mm-hmm. seem to be making this claim that that cortex has these sort of this infinite, oh no, not infinite, mm-hmm. but this very hyperplastic mm-hmm. properties that would allow it to sort mm-hmm. of tune to any kind of information that mm-hmm. it is exposed to. So, uh, so, so equipotentiality mm-hmm. is really for you a, a, an important mm-hmm. principle to understand how the system operates. Mm. This, well. Um Let's sort of go empirical on this. Okay, so um, the so if you if you look across the cortex, um, the, the the place where you see sort of the most relative diversity in gene expression are also the ones that are the not the ancient parts of cortex, but the historically homologous parts of cortex. So that you can see in the same animals all the time so you can uh, this is Leah Krupitzer's stuff so you can always find a primary visual cortex you can always find a primary somatosensory and an auditory cortex in all the mammals Um, and then if you look at and so these identifiable regions have had the sort of most time to kind of accrue specific genetic information okay Um, and, and you see the most Diversity in gene expression in them compared to the others, um, but the but the th- uh, thing I I think you pointed out I pulled out in the lecture was okay so so tell me something in in the genetics of primary visual cortex that requires that makes it optimal for being visual cortex other than getting visual information 
Um, now, there may well be something, but I have, have been asking people for a long time now, and, and not in a hostile manner, I mean, mm-hmm. because I really would like to know, um, okay, if you're going to make this visual cortex, does that mean that it has, you know, the neurotransmitter that's, that's just perfect for the, and neurotransmitter receptor systems that are just perfect for the normal time course of, of visual events or, or the, you know, axon spread or, or whatever, something about that that would really tailor primary visual cortex to its end. So that's what you'd want to ask. And, um, and, and so, so far we only have stuff that, um, shows up in the cortex because it gets a certain kind of input. So you, you see all these structures that almost certainly have some real innate component, but, but grow as a result of learning and experience. Um, but we don't know if there's anything, um, in vision or somesthesis or audition or something that's specific to those regions and that, that makes the analysis of that kind of sensory information mm-hmm. better because they typically end up in that particular place. Or maybe okay? we are also biased in trying yeah. to interpret mm-hmm. these areas mm-hmm. too strongly in mm-hmm. unimodal terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you, you might find also multimodal mm-hmm. responses in, in a visual area. And you certainly do. And then, and then, uh, and I, and you, and that's the other half of this thing. You see so much stuff just recently about, you know, well, conversion of visual cortex into other uses in, in reading Braille or echolocation or, or whatever. Um, and, and, and in cases where you only, where you don't have to be blind from birth, but can just try to take up a Braille hobby kind of recently. And, um, the one interesting thing is that, that we're just sort of fixated on visual cortex. I've never seen anyone try to do, uh, anything similar, you know, does, uh, 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 you know, do people who've lost sensation in their right hand use that for better understanding movies? I don't know. <laughs> you know, we're just, we don't tend to think of it uh, uh, as, a, you know, a surface that can be invaded so much or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Right. So then uh, you, you, so now we look mm-hmm. very much at mm-hmm. if you want the developmental program. Mm-hmm. Okay. But you also emphasized very much the role of motivation and embodiment. Mm-hmm. So, so how do those factors then really come in to the development mm-hmm. and the creation of a brain? Yeah, so, um, well, I originally started doing this research because I wanted to find out how you get a brain's wired for adaptive ends. And I, I wanted to find out, okay, how if I wanted to be a really visual animal, how would I set that up? Um, and and what all this research um, taught me is that, that my initial guess about how to do that was entirely wrong. I imagined that you man- you sort of somehow had a way of genetically identifying all the parts of the, different parts of the brain that and body that were visual, and you could um, somehow uh, name them genetically and cause them to co-vary and um, and that's how you would do that. Now I think that you generate this rather uh, determinant in structure, but plastic in content brain. Um, and and what you do to make a more visual brain is make the animal pay attention to its visual system, particularly as, for example, we like to look at eyes and faces spend a lot of time learning about that, and then that's what 
the environmental loop in that, then that is what your brain comes to analyze. So I think uh, if you look at where things really change in the brain from species to species, it's, it's in this sort of basal forebrain, what motivational system is attached to those fundamental reinforcement circuitry. And, and if you're going to send an organism on a different path, you change what it cares about. <laughs> and, you, and that's, that's what I'm interested in looking at now as, a, as I think the central place where sort of the organism and the environment come together to specify what the brain consists of. And uh, one of the uh, things that I got from your talk was mm -hmm. this notion uh, of the adaptable nature of the mm -hmm. vertebrate mammalian brain mm -hmm. uh, due to its kind of latent capacity. You know, know that we've been through this, uh, what is it, 400 mm -hmm. million year history mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of different species mm -hmm. and that in some way uh, modern brains have retained some of mm -hmm. that history even though... Mm -hmm. Uh, you're adapted to some particular uh, environment now. Mm -hmm. uh, your ancestors were adapted to very different environments. Mm -hmm. And you gave the example of monkeys that have adapted to uh, nocturnal living mm -hmm. uh, and have, I, I presume, mm -hmm. fairly quickly evolved mm -hmm. uh, a lot of nocturnal visual capacities mm -hmm. that you might see in other mammals. So is, is, am I right in, in, mm -hmm. in understanding that as being quite a strong claim about... Mm -hmm the latent capability of the nervous system mm. to you know, recover these, uh, mm -hmm. these capabilities they've had in the past and roll them out when the opportunity arises? Mm, I wouldn't go quite that far. So I was making, <laughs> I was making two kinds of claims there. One is for, for things that have been encountered routinely, like uh, you know, nocturnal versus diurnal or... Um, olfactory is of more more useful information to me than visual or uh, uh, the one that just came up uh, as we were talking here that this environment is really stable this environment is not the sort of stress dimension um, then in those cases you may well have the ability sort of retaining just to rapid to rather rapidly and in a coordinated way switch from one mode to another. Um, Would that yeah. be sort of a, a epigenetic in part? I mean, the Sometimes epigenetic, and some, but the ones I were talking about, none of them the, the right. were epigenetic to my knowledge. Do you I mean, have an example of, in sort of, well, uh, the stress, mammals of, of sort of epigenetic changes? Of well, kind? in the stress kinds right. of uh, things where it's going to, uh, when a particular kind of early environment is going to send you in a completely different direction for... What kind of things you attend to, and right. what motivates you, and so forth. Uh, but I, you know, that's not what I, I do my work on. Then the other, but then this this other the, the notion that um, the rest of the um, plasticity of the brain somehow embodies every possible thing that an ancestor has done. No, I don't think so. <laughs> so I don't think that's, that's quite a bridge that, too but, far. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, but there's a lot of, uh, yeah. you know, what was used to be yeah. called junk DNA. Now people mm -hmm. think, well, actually, it's got all this latent potential mm -hmm. in it. Yeah. And that explains mm -hmm. some fairly rapid transitions. It's you you know, it's quite possible. So it wouldn't be the first out. time. That was, yeah. uh, that, that's been... I have to have had to have been so careful talking about anything that vaguely sounds like that with the the way biology has been and sort of adaptation, the notion that there there could be anything other than the current adaptation state was such a 
an evil thing to say uh, for quite some time. That it, it, it's taken me a while to get comfortable with, with even saying something like that out loud, other than in my. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, because also in, in, yeah. certainly in popular culture, mm-hmm. there, there's now this this mm-hmm. this Dawkian view on evolution, which just means mm-hmm. it's very much mm-hmm. sort of feed forward. Mm-hmm controlled mm-hmm. by sort of these little fragments of DNA right, that sort yeah. of dictate what the mm-hmm. phenotype will look mm-hmm. like. But now in, in, in mm-hmm. what you're proposing, it looks like the picture mm-hmm. is becoming more complicated. So yeah. do you see this really as a, as a, as a, mm-hmm. a drastic departure from this more old-fashioned, or old-fashioned, the traditional reductionist view? Mm-hmm. Or is it sort of an amendment mm-hmm. of it? I, I don't really... Un- it's... The, the whole um, deviation that biology took to looking at only genes as the carrier of information um, at this point strikes me as just strange science. So, you know, so uh, multi-level s- selection, for example, s- somehow it, that would be to me like saying, well, I can study the, the, the properties of molecules, but I can never, ever describe the properties of gases, um, <laughs> you know, which is just, uh, you know, so, so collectively um, you can talk about um, in the kind of statistical language that I'm often using, there's, there's, there's variance that's accounted for at the level of species, there's at the level of taxon, there's all kinds of, it, it's that the variation useful variation across animals in anything you want to measure is not uh, attached to the gene. Um, and this is, this is, this is not a, a question about the usual, I mean, this is one version of multi-level selection arguments. There's one thing is all the, is all the causal structure at the level of selection for particular genes. But the second, but the second is, is just a, a more, um, you know, generic one. Um, can I use species to account for, for example, the the relative, um, you know, predominance of different genes on Earth? Well, I'm sure the snowy owl would say that the presence of human genes on Earth has some sort of consequences for its frequency, um, and that's that's the kind of of analysis of variance approach to the genome that just doesn't really get thought of and as people um, have been have been talking about how you talk about causation in biology so um, but when people aren't used to considering the different levels of, mm-hmm. of selection too much and I think people will get better at it okay. so, so. so Barbara you're you, mm-hmm. you're in this the study mm-hmm. of evolution mm-hmm. and, and the brain for for quite a while mm-hmm. and in some sense you also have been Changing your perspectives on this totally, yeah. right? So if we if mm-hmm. we now follow want to follow in your footsteps, mm-hmm. what's what's Barbara's law that we should uh, adhere to? Um, uh, there, there's a a particular um, uh, sort of uh, unsettled or questioning state, um, which you can either ignore or you can attend to. And that is, there's uh, someone just told me a story, but I'm not really happy about it. And and whenever you get that, I'm not really happy about it. Pay attention <laughs> to that, <laughs> and uh, and and try to figure out what what the causes you know, of of why that that story seems mm-hmm. inadequate. Really put this major 
you know, heavy alert system on in your head for that particular mm-hmm. kind mm-hmm. Of, of gut feeling, essentially, mm-hmm. that something is wrong with an explanation. Right. So pay mm-hmm. attention to annoying surprises. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so now five years from now, Tony mm-hmm. and I are going to come and visit you at Cornell University mm-hmm. to, to, to check whether um, you've been able to verify a prediction you're going to make today. So w- what's the most the most important prediction that you want to see tested in this time frame of about five years? Uh, uh, that 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 particular way of phrasing the question, I just I I need to rephrase a little because I I I, I like to um, I well my prediction is that that understanding motivational circuitry and its changes will be the way to understand how how species differences uh, emerge. But what we have is a complete absence of information about a lot of that. Uh, so people have really just begun. And I really think that uh, for a, a lot of this kind of bio, for biology in general, um, we get into hypothesis testing way too soon. And the first thing that you need to do is describe the state of variation that's there. And so, um, so I'd be happy if I knew a lot more about what the actual variation was between species in their, how their motivational systems would be hooked up, and then, then we'll worry about predicting a little bit later. Okay, very good. <laughs> okay. Barbara Finley, thank you very much for this conversation. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was okay. great. Yeah. Okay. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomimetics and Biohybrid Systems project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Program. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.